from the minute I started learning. It wasn't like I was learning. It felt like I was remembering something. It just made sense. I was like, oh, of course, that makes total sense. And it just, it felt really intuitive. And I I just felt really connected to all the materials and things that I was learning. So I just kept going. (laughs) We are back at the Mindset Mastery Desk. It is so great to have you here. Thank you for joining us once again. Today, we are talking about gratitude, emotions, kindness, empathy, and many more topics. So with so much to get through today, we are going to jump right into it. And I'm so pleased to welcome my guest, psychologist, Rachel Tomlinson. Good morning, Rachel. How are you? Good morning. Yes, very good. Bright and early here. Lovely to be here. Awesome. I'm so excited to talk to you all about psychology today. First of all, could I just get a bit of a background on how you became a psychologist? Yeah, so I originally, when I was going to go to uni, you're in high school and you sign up for uni and I was down to do um, Japanese interpreting. That's what I was going to do at uni, really different. (laughs) And then I realised that actually what I wanted was not necessarily the interpreting or the language skills I wanted to work with people so I pulled out my um, uni course prospectus I don't think they even make those anymore and I had a look at like people related jobs and the qualification that kept popping up the most was psychology and so I thought well if I get a psychology degree I can kind of go anywhere and work with anyone I had no real intention yet to to work as a psychologist and when I actually got into uni I realized how uh, tough that would be. There's lots of years of education required and only small proportions of people that do like a a bachelor's degree in psychology go on and do that. But from the minute I started learning, it wasn't like I was learning. It felt like I was remembering something. It just made sense. I was like, oh, of course. Like, oh, that that makes total sense. And it just, it felt really intuitive. And I, I just felt really connected to all the materials and things that I was learning. So I just going <laughs> so I did my undergrad undergrad degree and I moved to the UK and got some I finished my degree over there I was allowed to finish externally and when I was over there I started working in community services and just loved it I just got as much experience as I could in a whole bunch of different fields so drug and alcohol disabilities women's refuge homelessness children's residential facilities and I just thought, yeah, actually, I really love this. So when I came back to Australia, I picked up my degree um, again and did some postgrad studies and then got qualified. But it just, it just felt really natural. It just felt like where I wanted to go and and it's the most amazing work. So I haven't looked back. (laughs) That's awesome. That's a big difference between Japanese (laughs) interpreting and then... I know, I know, very, very different. I mean, I still love the language, but yeah, I just, I... As I said, just haven't looked back. Like this was just the work I think I was meant to do. I just love it. That's awesome. So what do you specialize in now? I'm still a bit of a jack of all trades in terms of my work history, but the work that I'm really passionate about is working with children and families. So I've done a lot of work in play therapy and early trauma and parenting support. And that's the work that just I'm really passionate about. If we can catch children and families kind of in those early years it becomes more preventative and we see less adults who are you know affected by mental health issues or by trauma Um, and and it just 
it, it feels really exciting to be able to get in there in the early stages and, and really support a family or really support a child through what they're struggling with. Mm, yeah, definitely. So talking about play therapy, you said, mm. what does that involve? Children communicate through play. So this is particularly for really little children, but I've even brought some play therapy strategies into adult sessions. <laughs> and I think we can all benefit from, from some of the techniques. But children communicate through play. So even very, very young children will express their, their needs. They'll express their emotions. They'll play out things that they see. They'll process stuff that's happening in their day, little, little stuff that they're learning and wanting to, to you know, practice and get better at or right through to the concerning stuff that they're trying to understand and they do it through play. Mm-hmm. And play therapy is really about setting up an environment with toys and activities that children can use in a self-directed way to play out their stuff and help them to make sense of that internal space and externalize it for them and and support them. You can have directive and non-directive play therapy where you can simply be part of that process alongside them and mirroring and reflecting back. Or you can have some more directive intentions as well where you might set up a particular activity, not that you would ever force them to complete it, but to encourage them to play out or to learn about particular emotions or processing particular things that you know are happening. And then there's also that really practical work around teaching kids. Okay, so you've got a really big angry feeling. Like how do we how do we deal with this big angry feeling in a way that's constructive and healthy and feels good for you and, and helps you process it? Mm-hmm. So it's it's really fantastic work. It doesn't actually feel like work. You're sitting down on the ground playing games with kids. Like if you break it down, it's more complex than that, but it's, yeah. it's just such amazing work to, to be a part of. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So how do we teach kids about feelings and emotions and what they mean? And I guess like learning how to name our different feelings and emotions. Yeah. So kids learn about emotions in the same way that they learn about everything else you know they first of all watch us and and they essentially as parents uh, or as adults in a child's life we we do a lot of modeling that we're not really aware of we're not doing it intentionally we're just living our lives but our children watch us and they really really pay attention to what we're doing and how we process things how we deal with things react to things and that's how they learn oh that's what's acceptable or that's what that's all about and they start to create connections so part of learning about emotions is modeling so how do you deal with emotions or not (laughs) as it may be and how do you respond to them how do you bounce back what coping strategies do you bring in but they also learn by the same way that we say for example teach them what is a cat Children aren't born knowing what cats are. So we point at something kind of fluffy in their environment. They're like, look, look at the cute cat. And they're like, oh, okay, that fluffy thing's a cat. And then it gets more complex. So they so they point at a fluffy thing and you're like, oh, no, that's a dog. And they go, oh, okay, how do I tell the difference? So we start teaching them how do you tell the difference between a cat and a dog, like pointy ears, long tail, you know, like small, has whiskers. We start to get kind of more in depth and we teach them the difference between different animals, for example, um, and we also teach them how to recognize what an animal looks like. It's exactly the same for emotions. So we start with really broad, like, is that a good feeling or a, or a bad feeling? And we name it for them until they know, because children aren't born knowing about their emotions. All they know is the physical sensation, which can be really distressing for them, really confusing for them. 
And that confusion can add to overwhelm. That's why we see tantrums in toddlers. They just full of all these big feelings, like really big emotions and don't know what to do with them. They don't know what they are. They're confused. They've got no control. So as they as they kind of get more mature, we add more words to it. So is it sad? Is it mad? Is it glad? Like we kind of start to get more, more narrowed down in terms of what is the feeling and we name it when we see it. So, mm-hmm. you know, things like, oh, you know, that your friend wouldn't share their toy. That must have made you so sad. And they go, oh, sad. That's what that feeling was. Or your brother wouldn't, you know, give you that last chocolate biscuit that made you so angry. And you're like, they're like, yeah, I did feel so angry. But you can also do like to extend on that if we're talking about actively teaching them. So not just, you know, that incidental stuff where we kind of name it and model it. You know, you've got like intentional teaching opportunities, like watching a TV show together and you're like, oh, wow, look at what happened to that character. I don't know, insert character name. Gee, I wonder what happened there. You know, that their friends didn't let them play or someone made fun of them. You know, how do you think they felt? And see what your kid says and go, oh, yeah, they probably would have felt really upset or really lonely or whatever it might have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same with books. You know, we've got those really good intentional learning opportunities through reading and, and identifying the characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. So for kids and I'd say especially adults, what happens when we try to avoid our feelings? Uh, nothing much good <laughs> is going to happen from avoiding feelings. It's an, it's an initial instinct because feelings don't always feel good. You know, we've got a number of like global emotions that doesn't matter what community you're from, what culture you're from, what country or what language you speak, there are some key emotions. And of the emotions, happy is really the only good one. Surprise is, surprise is the other feeling where it could be a good surprise, it could be not so good of a surprise but the rest of the emotions describe you know kind of negative things like like anger sadness disgust fear those are not particularly nice feelings and when things don't feel good it's a natural instinct to just back off like we don't want to feel that feeling just because you don't want to feel that feeling doesn't mean it's not happening Mm. doesn't mean that there's not stuff in your environment that's making like triggering that off and making you feel that way so you're not actually avoiding the, you know, the situation or avoiding the emotion. It's still happening. And what happens is when we don't accurately or adequately respond to our feelings and kind of just let them happen, we can become either desensitized. So we find it really hard to experience any kind of emotions or alternatively, we can feel really intense emotions that aren't really related to a situation so you've got kind of all of this it's a bit like a a crock pot like you put the lid on and you turn up the heat and you know it starts bubbling it eventually it's going to come out like you can't stop it from bubbling you know you've got to it's going to release at some point so the other thing is around how are you avoiding the emotion people don't really avoid emotions in particularly adaptive ways they find other ways to kind of mask it or hide it and sometimes those coping strategies can be not particularly helpful especially in the long term that avoidance so 
probably at the more extreme level would be things like substance use to, to avoid or to numb or other distraction techniques, kind of unsafe behaviours or unhealthy behaviours, just to avoid those emotions. So it's, it's kind of twofold. It's, it's not really good for you, you know, emotionally and mental health wise but at the same time it's it's also how are you doing that that's probably not particularly adaptive for you either Mm, mm. so how do we you know if we are trying to avoid our feelings and emotions and we're getting into those negative patterns what can we do to help deal with that so that we can get out of that negative space before Mm. it starts to affect us long term yeah, I, I think it, if you have been avoiding emotions for a long time, and it's not a judgment if you do, like that's a cope, that is a coping strategy. Sometimes we need to just back off until we're in a space where we can really, you know, sit with it and, and feel the feeling. Sometimes in the immediate moment, we just need to, uh-uh, not today, out of here. It's not a judgment. Everybody does it at, at some point. But if you're finding that, you you know, you're not kind of processing emotions, I, I think it's really important to figure out, first of all, what's triggered it. When we can figure out what's triggered it, we can figure out why the emotion has, has appeared or has been triggered. Each of our emotions occur for various reasons and they help us to get our needs met. So being able to acknowledge and understand your emotions is actually really helpful in terms of meeting your own needs. And that's going to help you feel good about yourself in in the future. So, for example, anger. Anger generally comes from someone has overstepped um, a boundary. You feel unsafe in some way. Someone has crossed a a moral line for you. So generally, anger is a a self-protective mechanism. I'm not saying there's a difference between anger and aggression. So the feeling is in itself is not an issue. You know, we need to be mindful about what we do with emotions. But the feeling of anger itself is a self-protective mechanism. It's telling us that something's gone wrong in, in our life. Someone has stepped over some kind of boundary or have gone against, you know, what it is that we believe in or how we operate, how we work, how we prefer things. It means probably that our needs are not getting met. So it's really important to actually acknowledge, okay, well, why am I angry? What, what led to this feeling? Same goes for fear. That one's probably the most easy to explain. You know, you're frightened. So what made you frightened? It's generally a safety. Again, another protective mechanism. Like, why am I feeling unsafe? What's happening in this this situation? How can I then protect myself? And if we're not acknowledging either of those feelings, then we can't meet our own needs and we can't protect ourselves and make sure that we're safe physically and emotionally. Mm. And even sadness, that one's a really tricky one, but even sadness has a purpose. It it tells us how much something meant to us. Anger tells us what things mean something to us, you know, so what's important to us. But sadness really tells us how important something was to us. If you Mm. you didn't care about something, you wouldn't feel sad. Mm. It tells you about the depth. And even though it feels really, really horrible, it tells you really important messages about, you know, the important things in your world. And if we didn't experience sadness, you wouldn't have the opposite of being able to acknowledge and, and really appreciate what happiness felt like either. Mm. So the, the first step in, you know, coming back from avoiding and, and slowly starting to step into the space of owning and accepting your emotions is what are they trying to tell me? And when you can see them as adaptive and trying to tell you something and meeting a need, it, 
you feel more in control. You feel more confident because you know what feeling is, why it's happened. You can put stuff in place to support yourself, to look after yourself. And when you know what the emotion is and you've been able to acknowledge its triggers, you can then start to self-soothe or look after yourself and self-care because you know what's what's happening and then you can better match your, your needs. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to really sit with our feelings and process them? Yeah, it's uncomfortable. Yep, for sure. (laughs) Let's not, let's not beat around the bush, but it's, people are really afraid of emotions. Sometimes they fear, fear, I'm going to feel like this forever. You know, this feeling is so intense and they can't bear that distress and they want to get away from it. But it's just a feeling, you know, and the feeling will not last forever. It's, it's a bit like a wave, you know, you're swimming out in the ocean and you see a wave coming at you and you go, bleep, okay, if you fight it, what's going to happen? Nothing much. The wave is still rolling. <laughs> you're just going to get bold, you know, to the shore again. Probably covered in sand. Your hair might be a bit of a mess. You might not feel pretty average afterwards, but the wave still happened. It did. So... <laughs> So if we think about emotions like that, how is another way that we deal with the wave? We see it coming and we prepare ourselves. Mm-hmm. Then what we do is we kind of hold our breath and we duck underneath and we wait for the feeling to pass or the wave to pass. And you can feel it. You can feel it as it builds. You can feel it as it's leaving. And then you know when it's safe to pop up on the other side. So I'm not saying that we just have to sit with a feeling and just completely accepted of course we can bring in strategies to counteract the feeling but the intention is not to get rid of the feeling because it's only a feeling yeah um, and it's telling us something important so we don't want to you know lose those important messages but we can still take care of ourselves you know so what do you do when you're feeling sad you know okay well maybe put on a good movie you're not avoiding the feeling or saying that the feeling doesn't exist but you know you also want to counteract it with with a different feeling you might choose to soothe your senses. So I always recommend to clients, children and adults to have a a sensory self-care box. So you pop stuff in the box for all five senses so that you can kind of immerse yourself in in other sensations and not avoid the feeling, but give your body something else to process, some other stimulus that's really adaptive and, and healthy. So for example, the five senses, so stuff you can see, so pictures of your favorite holiday, pictures of like beautiful scenery you've also got naturally soothing pictures they're called natural fractals so it's pictures of like the fibonacci sequence in nature and it sounds a bit technical but it's like yeah. if you google it you find some great images so it's like swirls that naturally appear in plants yeah. um and there's they've done all this research that actually just looking at that is relaxing <laughs> which wow. is cool. that's cool <laughs> Lock some pictures up on your wall, pop, pop them in your sensory sensory box. Look out at nature, like change what you're looking at. Go, go outside, look out at some beautiful scenery, look out your window. If you're talking about scents, like if you're feeling a bit low and a bit flat, you might pick something citrusy and zingy that's going to feel uplifting. If you're feeling really stressed and overwhelmed, maybe you pick something soothing like lavender. Uh, maybe you've got a scent like a perfume or a cologne or just an essential oil that just makes you feel really good or reminds you of something really positive like that in the box too and the same goes for all of the other senses as well like find things you know for, so you've got sight you've got sound so whale songs if that's your jam <laughs> you know relaxing music maybe it's really like upbeat music that makes you want to dance and kind of move your body whatever it might be 
Mm -hmm. um, taste, touch. So something pliable like like Play-Doh to squeeze or maybe it's like drawing and colouring, which is like visual and touch. Mm -hmm. uh, could be like a little bit of um, Play-Doh or something really soft and soothing. Could be like a hand cream that also smells really good. So just like pack this box with stuff to soothe yourself and, and bring it out when you're feeling really overwhelmed mm -hmm. and move your body. Like that's the other thing. If you've got an emotion, just move your body. It helps to kind of, you know, process and burn off excess energy associated with particular emotions. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all know that exercise and being able to flood our body with all those good hormones is really beneficial. Can you tell me about probably some, some neuroscience behind that, why exercise is so good to help us feel better? Yeah, so essentially when we're stressed, our body releases something called cortisol. Um, cortisol is a stress hormone um, and it does not so nice stuff to your body. It impacts on, so, so cortisol is associated with um, the fight, flight, freeze response, which is when your body is getting prepared to keep itself out of danger. So your heart starts beating faster, you start getting really sweaty, your stomach might clench and, and you might feel sick, you might get headaches, you might be a bit shaky, a bit dizzy. So essentially your body releases cortisol which there's a lot of other kind of steps behind it but essentially that the release of that hormone impacts other areas of your body which kind of prepares you to fight flight or freeze in order to keep yourself safe from something dangerous and when we exercise our body releases endorphins which are feel-good chemicals and they help to counteract the you know the cortisol in our bodies so we're kind of flooding our brain with feel-good chemicals instead. And when you've had a, a period of um, having cortisol and adrenaline in your body, which is one of the hormones that kicks off as well when we're feeling stressed, that adrenaline can leave us with a lot of excess energy. So you've heard about, you know, the people that have been in like a car accident and then they like somehow miraculously like lift the car off their loved one to save them. Yeah. <laughs> that, thanks to adrenaline, it gives us like superhuman power. So we end up with all this excess energy that we need to, to burn off. So exercise helps us with that. It can also change your breathing patterns. So when you're exercising and you're needing to take like deeper breaths to be able to like not pass out. <laughs> the, the way that we breathe can actually um, regulate our nervous system as well. And the nervous system is associated with fight, flight and freeze and release of those stress hormones. So when we kind of regulate our breathing and move our bodies, it, it does a whole range of really good things for us, which can counteract lots of not so good feeling emotions and the, and the hormones that are released in our body as a result of them. What happens when we're in a really stressful environment and we have like like over a long period of time and we have a buildup of cortisol in the body and that doesn't get released? Yeah, that one's that one's a bit of a bit of a tricky one. So we, we all have like a baseline. You can't see me moving my hands because this is an audio, but, <laughs> but we all have like a baseline. So imagine just like a, a horizontal line, like the horizon, right? So we're all kind of trundling along and then something happens that stresses us out, it makes us scared and we have like this little peak. So imagine like you're going up a hill and then you come back down again. So you have that kind of like peak of cortisol, it's processed in the body, all of those things that I talked about happen in your body, like shortness of breath and sore stomach and headache and blah, 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 blah. 
then what happens is it slowly tapers back down. And instead of coming back to our baseline, we actually dip a little bit in terms of kind of energy reserves. We can feel really tired and overwhelmed and exhausted after like a, a period of stress or, or fright. And then it takes a little while to come back up to that baseline. And then we trundle along and, you know, off we go. And, and it'll happen again in the future. Some, you know, heels are bigger than others. Some are just little blips. Some are like, you know, Mount Everest. But they come back down to that baseline. But if we're constantly in that state of stress, our body's like, oh, okay, this is the new norm. This is what's happening to so our baseline actually increases. So it doesn't take us as much to, because we're already partway up that hill, it doesn't take us as much to feel triggered so we can get um, our emotions and those stress responses can be heightened and triggered much more easily. Mm. But then also it doesn't take us much to become triggered because we're already partway up that hill. So our baseline increases. And when we are exposed to cortisol and stress hormones for a really long time, it can impact things like heart health, immunity, Obviously, your mental well-being. It can also impact relationships because if you're kind of really short fuse or you're really frustrated really quickly and you're focused on your safety and, and your, you know, that immediate concern of, you know, feeling overwhelmed mm. is going to be taking over. It's, it's going to be really hard to relate to people in kind of neutral, relaxed kind of ways and it can start to affect heaps of other areas of your life. It's not to say that that's it. Your baseline is, is there constantly. Like you can come back this of course but it's just about doing lots and lots and lots of self-soothing so first of all figuring out well, what are the triggers are there ways that you can meet your needs so that you're not being triggered by those things again it's not avoiding but it's about acknowledging okay so how can I what is it that's causing me to do this can I can I change my my environment or can I say if it's a another person that's kind of affecting this you know is there a way that I can kind of change what I'm doing or not be around this person, or if it's a work situation, can I can I leave this job? Can I find another job? Whatever it might be. Maybe you can't. So we also work on self-soothing as well. So all those sensory things that I just mentioned are really, really fantastic. Grounding and staying present so that you're not getting caught up so quickly in that quick shoot up the hill with the cortisol and, and that like intensity. So staying present and grounded is, is really helpful in that regard. Talking through, so finding yourself a health professional, a trusted health professional to talk to about your emotions, what's happening, why they're happening, strategies that you can kind of build in and, and to make sure that you're really looking after yourself. Because when you look after yourself and you reduce some of those triggers or you're building up your capacity and ability to cope and be really resilient, that baseline is going to start coming back down again. It's really about looking after yourself and prioritizing your needs mm. and making sure you're yeah, loving yourself, looking after yourself. Yeah. Awesome. So I see the word self-care being thrown around all over the internet, all over social media. <laughs> But other than, you know, just going to the day spa or something like that, what does self-care really mean? Self-care is about filling your cup. When we simplify self-care to being just a massage or go and get your nails done, mm -hmm. you know, I think that it simplifies what is the intention of self-care. So self-care is about meeting our needs. And so 
first of all, you got to figure out what, <laughs> what need is it that you need to be met. So if you're, for example, I'm a really busy mum. Like I've got a couple of different jobs. I've got a toddler. My life is just chaos <laughs> um, on some days. And, and I've been pulled in lots of different directions. So for me, self-care is often about saying no. Mm-hmm. Actually, no, I can't come out for that dinner. Or no, I'm not going to pick up that extra piece of work. Or no, I'm not going to be mum. I'm not going to be wife. I'm not going to be psychologist. I'm just going to go and be Rachel for a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, for some people, self-care is about maybe they've been really flat, down, low, isolated, and self-care is about getting out there and being present. It's whatever need is not being met you know, that, that we need to fulfill. So it's really about listening closely and figuring out what that is. But it's also just those little breaks and just those acknowledgements of, okay, it, it's important for me to look after me. We can be quite selfless and put other people first. And I, I call this one the aeroplane analogy. It's not mine. It's not like I made this up or I'm like so fantastic that I came up with this analogy. I'm just putting it out there. But it's called the aeroplane analogy. So most people have been on an aeroplane, not so much recently, but yeah. I think we all get, all get the prayer. So, you, so you've got the safety demonstrations and the air hosts are like, okay, you know, it's an oxygen mask pops on, put on your own first before you help anybody else. And we're kind of like, well, why? But I love my kids or I love my husband or my wife or my partner or there's this old lady and she's just really, really struggling. I should put theirs on first. Could be an old man, could be anyone who's struggling. Let me not make any judgments or assumptions here but they say put your own on first and if you think about the science of that okay so you put yours on first and you've got all of your oxygen you know when we're oxygen deprived um, it it impacts our perception our reality our our capacity to kind of cope and manage and and think things through properly Um, you can also pass out as well if you don't have enough oxygen you're not going to be much help to anybody at that point so they tell you to put yours on first. And then once you're safe and once you're okay, you can then care for other people and help, you know, the little old lady or your kids or your partner or whatever, put on their oxygen masks mm-hmm. and then they'll be okay too. Mm-hmm. So self-care is about, people often think it's selfish, but it's 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 so important. It's, it's so integral to our well-being and actually the well-being of the other people around us if we prioritise ourselves and look after our needs first it doesn't mean that you're looking after your needs therefore you can't look after anybody else's but if you look after your own and you're feeling okay and feeling good and coping then you're much better you know able to look after the people that you really care about too Mm -hmm. yeah that's absolutely right so when we're always connected and we're always busy and everything is frantic all the time especially Mm -hmm. when we're always attached to our phones why is it beneficial to spend time to quieten our minds? I think there's there's lots of research out there and I'm not bagging computers or phones or anything like that, but apps are built to be addictive. You know, they're, they're a commercial product. They're a commodity. They're built to make you want to use them more they're rewarding so what happens is we get used to the rewards of technology so even the internet is a reward you've got a question and you pop it into google and you're rewarded with an immediate answer there's something really gratifying about that so we lose our capacity to delay our instant gratification when everything is available mm. do you know what i want to see a funny cat video bam it's right there in front of me i want to buy some new shoes because i'm feeling a little bit average today 
bam, got eBay right in front of me. I can buy some new shoes. Lovely. But we kind of, it, it can distract us from dealing with our feelings and get that instant gratification and that instant rush of, you know, something being available to us. And we kind of lose that capacity to wait and delay, which is, has lots of positive mental and emotional benefits. But then there's also the reward as well. So certain apps and social media apps and games are built to reward us. So, you know, you click a button and you win something or someone likes something or, you know, just the colours and the input that you get from playing is really rewarding. And so we, you know, want to do it more and more and more. So this is what this is what we have to kind of deal with is this like pull, this draw to use technology and we kind of forget to be present in the moment and we are so busy like pushing for the next thing, for the next thing, for the next thing, for the next piece of stimulus or the next high that we, you know, it can affect the way that we process our day-to-day kind of living and life and, and the way that we engage with other people, the way that we feel about our lives or, or how we get fulfillment in our lives. And it's really important just to stop um, all of that kind of heightened stimulus and, and all of those kind of like constant, you know, engagement is, it can be really stressful for our mind because we're having to pick up all the stimulus. Our brain is constantly looking for danger in, in essence. It's looking out for new things to process and what does that mean for me? And it can be really exhausting and really stressful. So it's really important to engage in, you know, periods of detox, so like coming off. It's also really important not to use technology and screens for at least an hour before bedtime because it can affect your sleep. And we know that sleep has got lots of mental health impacts as well. And also things just like in general, just grounding. You know, we can, we talk, I talked a little bit before about grounding and because we can get so caught up in what's next, what's next, what's next, what's next, that we kind of forget to just be present and just be in this moment. So definitely bringing in some grounding strategies can be really important in counteracting. I'm not saying we can't use technology because it's all around us. We have to engage with it. But how can we do it safely for ourselves and and with limits and and appropriate boundaries for ourselves? And everyone's different. Definitely, yeah, bringing in some grounding is is really important. Yeah. What are some grounding activities we can do, especially if, you know, you're just starting out, you've never done a grounding practice before? Where do we start? Grounding is really simple in essence, but if you've got a busy mind, it can be a little bit tricky to to get started because your mind is really busy. So sometimes we actually need to give our mind a job (laughs) to keep it busy, but in a directed, present way. So instead of our mind going off and thinking about all these like different possibilities and things and what's next, we can give it something intentional. So one of the strategies that, I recommend clients use often is pull up a picture on your phone probably better if it's not on your phone but look hey whatever you could look out a window so wherever you are most places have a window look at a picture on a wall like doesn't matter find a picture have a look at the picture like really look at the picture and what are the different colors that you can see and it's not just red and blue like like let's let's really get into it let's pretend like we're artists so like ocean blue sky blue 
um, like maroon, cherry red, fire engine red, like whatever, like get into it, like really get into it, like all the like teeny tiny little colors that you can see in that picture or that scene in front of you. And then move on to name all the objects that you can see in the picture or the scene. So again, get into it into like really a lot of depth. Like, okay, so it's not just a tree. Like, let's break down the tree. What, what can you see on the tree? Okay, I can see bark. I can see branches. I can see stems. I can see leaves. I can see flowers. Once you've done that activity and you've had a bit of a look, you kind of can stop and realize that you've taken control of where your brain is going and the direction and you're being entirely present with that picture or that scene. You're not thinking about anything else. You're just focused on that. And so that's a really good way of dealing if you're having an intense emotion as well. <laughs> um, but also just in general, a grounding activity. But if you've got a busy mind and you need to give it a job, that one can be a really good strategy because you still it's still doing something, but it's intentional and present. Other really good grounding activities for those who need a little kind of a little bit of focus, but are starting to be able to quieten their mind a little bit is make yourself a cup of coffee or tea intentionally. It's the weirdest thing. Like, so lift up the kettle to fill it. So as you lift it up, what does it feel like in your hand to grab the kettle? Is, is it hard? Is, does it have rubber? Is it metal? Is it cold? Is it warm? What does it feel like? And then as you lift the kettle, how heavy is it? Like feel the sensation and just pause, like feel the sensation of physically holding the weight of the kettle in your hand. Walk over to the sink, turn on the tap. What does it feel like when you have to turn the tap physically on your fingers? Then as you're filling it with water, listening to the sound of the water filling the kettle, feel the sensation of your hand going back, putting the kettle on. What does it feel like when you click the button? Does it make a sound? What's the pressure like underneath your thumb or your finger or however you turn your kettle on? Listen to the sounds of the kettle boiling. That's probably the most relaxing part of this mm -hmm. kind of grounding. Listen to it as it boils, you know. So you, you do the whole making a cup of coffee because we make cups of coffee or tea or juice or water or whatever it is all day, every day. But make it something intentional and give yourself that grounding opportunity for something that is already part of your day. You're not going to have to do anything extra, but it, it will really freak you out because you'll be like making this cup of coffee and you'll be like, oh, this is really intense. Like, this is really weird because we do so many things on autopilot that it's about bringing it back to the present moment. So if you can catch yourself doing everyday stuff, brushing your teeth, you'll never brush your teeth again in the same <laughs> way. If you do it mindfully, it really weirds you out. Like <laughs> the sensation of actually brushing and really paying attention to that, that moment, that reality. It, it's, it's a huge reminder because when we stay present, we're not caught up in those negative thought patterns or cyclical thought patterns that can lead us to particular emotions. It's a really useful tool for helping us cope with and, and manage our emotions and mood and stress and all sorts of things. Yeah, I think we do a lot of everyday tasks on autopilot, like you said, especially get up, make the morning coffee, I make coffee, you know, mid-morning, have like a, a break, but your brain is still going in circles with the task that you are about to do or you were just finishing or we don't have those opportunities to be still and give our brain an actual break throughout the day. And I'm a busy woman, like everyone out there listening are also incredibly busy people. One of the biggest hampers for self-care is like, I'm too busy to add something. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you don't need to add something. 
Self-care is sometimes taking stuff away, but it can also be what can I do within my current day that's going to give me that little kind of break or that breather, and it's it's perfect for you know for busy people. Mm. And also talking about that, it would be really beneficial to take those small breaks. It only takes a few minutes to make a cup of coffee to be able mm. to be more productive when we go back to doing all our busy tasks. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's again that aeroplane analogy. Once you've got your oxygen mask on, you're going to be feeling real good. You're going to be much more productive. Like stress, the stress hormone itself heightens part of it. As I said, our brain is always looking for danger. So that is really heightened. So when we're kind of stressed, we're like looking around, our brain is constantly like cataloging all the things, looking for danger, looking for threat. So if we can stop, you know, and, and, like bring our brain back to some kind of neutral space and, and our, our cortisol levels are reduced, we're actually going to do much better at concentrating, you know. So when people are like, oh, I'm so busy, so I just kept working and I did like two extra hours and I just kind of kept working, 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 you're actually probably not working smarter, you're working harder. But if you take like a small break, you're actually going to be more productive. There's a really interesting bell curve associated with um, stress and productivity so mm-hmm. a certain amount of stress again it's that hill so everybody imagine a hill so as you go up the hill that's the level of stress and it also is the level of productivity you reach the top of the hill which is like that sweet spot of a certain amount of stress keeps us like strives us like oh gosh there's an outcome like a better needed or there's a target or there's a deadline or something a certain mm-hmm. amount of pressure is going to help us excel and be really productive but then very quickly we fall down the other side of the hill and we become completely unproductive when we become more stressed. So we're actually not doing ourselves any justice by just push, 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 push. And it's better to take that little break and step back, you know, to the top of the hill where the view is really nice. Mm, I think that's a really good analogy, the bell curve, because there's, I would call it a difference in feeling like pressure to get something finished and then you get to a certain point, which is the top of the bell curve. And that's when you get to the Mm -hmm. overwhelm and your brain stops working then because you're so focused on the stress and not what you actually need to be doing that there's no productivity Mm -hmm. left and you're just pushing and fighting to be able to get something done. And when you reach that level of stress, your brain is also not focused because you're thinking about that stress and, and your body your hormones are doing other things that are making it really hard for you to actually concentrate on what you need to be doing. So 100% agree. It's, it's, it feels counterproductive to take a break, but actually it's much, much more productive just to even a small one, make yeah. a cup of coffee, do a grounding activity. <laughs> much better in the long run. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I want to talk about gratitude. How does practicing gratitude or thinking about things or especially writing things down that we're grateful for help our mental health and well-being there are a lot of studies out there and i'm gonna show my ignorance by not being able to quote them directly but there's a there's a lot of science and there's a lot of research out there that talks about the rewiring of our brains so if you can commit to writing down three things that you're grateful for and it doesn't even have to be like huge big stuff it could be like i'm so grateful that this morning there was enough milk left for me to make my morning coffee obviously i'm obsessed with coffee because it's morning here and i probably haven't had enough i promise <laughs> um, but you know that you could be grateful for that like maybe your kid remembered to say thank you unprompted you're like oh, nailed it grateful for that 
you know, or it could be the really big stuff like a stranger held open the door for me, or it was raining and someone like used their umbrella. Like it could be much bigger stuff. But the act of writing down, there's something permanent about the writing down, and it also engages, you know, a different part of our, our brain than just the feeling. So it really kind of compounds and, and makes permanent like the, the writing of the gratitude there's something about that writing that's that's really important but if you write say three gratitude prompts like a day for 21 days there's a lot of neuroscience research that shows that it, it can rewire our brains and the reason that gratitude is so beneficial for our mental well-being is because we we all develop thought patterns so our brain is is really clever, but it's also really dumb. <laughs> it likes shortcuts. Like it's really clever because it likes to see if we can make shortcuts. So you see a green light, you know that green means go and stop. And it's because our brain has received enough pieces of stimulus to know, okay, green always means go, red always means stop. So we just don't even really pay attention to it anymore. It just happens automatically. Our brain has lots of automatic rules, including really not so nice automatic rules about how we think about ourselves, how we think about situations, how we process stuff, how we think about all different stimulus, people, things, events in our lives. And it happens automatically because we've done it so often, it just becomes that go-to process. So sometimes we don't even realize that we're experiencing negative thought patterns. So what happens when we intentionally bring gratitude in, into our daily practice is you're giving your brain something intentionally positive. Mm-hmm. So you're rewiring that automatic process. So if you have developed negative thought patterns, you're going to be looking at, at things. It's called cognitive bias. Your brain likes to be right, which is kind of nice, but it stops us from um, <laughs> being able to pick up errors. So for example, there's lots of cognitive bias out there for like all young people are troublemakers or all old people are terrible drivers or I don't know, all sorts of terrible assumptions and judgments that, you know, are made out there. Mm-hmm. Not that I think any of those things, by the way, but I'm just saying they're quite common ones that mm-hmm. are out there in the media. And so what happens is, you know, because we don't intentionally like correct it, our brain kind of actually looks for things that make it correct. Mm-hmm. So it discounts all the times that you saw a nice young person like helping someone across the road or, or volunteering. It just kind of goes, mm. Mm-hmm. But it focuses on, you know, those other stories that, you know, that don't contradict your, your thought patterns that agree with those thought patterns. So when you, sorry, I've gone into a really long-winded explanation of negative <laughs> thought patterns. Um, but essentially our brain wants to be right. So it only looks for the stuff that agrees with those thought patterns. But when we intentionally engage in gratitude, we're teaching our brain to look for the positives mm. and to seek them out. And when we can do that multiple times a day, and again, it doesn't have to be big stuff, what we're doing is we're retraining our brain instead of looking for negative stuff or those old patterns or those old assumptions, we're retraining it to look for positive or even just neutral. Like, I don't even care. Like, neutral is better than negative. Like, even just neutral stuff, it's, it's teaching your brain in a really intentional way to seek and acknowledge the positive. And that has huge mm. impacts on the way that we perceive things and the way we process things and the way we engage with and deal with and respond to all the stuff that happens in our lives. So when we're doing that, we're training our brain to look for the positive. Does it become more automatic in our everyday lives after we do this for a long period of time? 
That's why they say the 21 days, there's all, there's this kind of like, they say that it takes 21 days to, to build a habit. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why they kind of have done like studies of 21 days to kind of retrain your brain. So mm-hmm. if you can do something every day for three weeks, 21 days, mm-hmm. it, it does start to become a habit and it becomes a new habit. So that, that's kind of where that 21 days comes from. I mean, don't stop at the 21 days, continue, please. Like it's going to make you feel really good every day because not only does it have that long-term benefit, but on the day-to-day, like starting your day off or ending your day going, these are these were the good things that happened in my day. You're going to feel pretty nice. Like it's a really feel-good feeling. Like who doesn't want that? Like keep going. Don't stop at 21 days by all means. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And I also want to talk about kindness and Mm. um, doing acts of kindness, you know, how that helps us to feel good, the same as like looking for gratitude. So what does showing kindness to other people do for ourselves? Oh my gosh. Kindness is just my jam. We are, we are built as humans to be kind because we have evolved to live in groups regardless of religious beliefs or scientific beliefs the way that we have evolved and the way that our body is made up is built to be social so we have eyes to see we have you know tongues and mouths and brains to communicate we have ears to hear like we're built to communicate and build relationships for safety mm-hmm. so we we want to be safe we want to be in relationships we want to be connected with other people it gives us a sense of safety and security Without that safety and security, then our brains experience a sense of threat and it goes into that threat mode that I've talked about enough. <laughs> Go back and listen to the fight, fight, flight. Fight, flight, freeze stuff. Like that's what happens when you're lonely and isolated. So we're built to be in a community. So our bodies are also simultaneously built to be kind because when we're kind and consider others, which is considering others in the group, it strengthens our role in the group and it, it strengthens the functioning of the group which is what keeps us safe, essentially. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about that, it, it, it's, it's actually a reward. Our brain physically releases hormones that reward us for being kind. I mean, it's like pat on the back, like <laughs> nailed it, love it, great work. It's the same as doing exercise or having a bar of chocolate. Like when we are kind, first of all, it increases our self-esteem and our self-confidence because we've done something nice and we've acknowledged, you know, the, the power of what we've done and the impact of, of what, you know, what we have achieved or helped somebody with. You know, it's that sense of fulfillment and that sense of doing good. It increases our optimism as well. So again, similar to that gratitude stuff, like if we're intentionally kind, we're looking for ways to be kind or we're, you know, we're, we're seeing the outcome of kindness. So the other part around that, so as I said, our brain rewards us. So it releases oxytocin. Oxytocin is the love hormone. It makes us feel real good. You know, they they talk about there's lots of different kind of research out there, but it's essentially like the love hormone. Like we feel nice when our body releases this hormone. There's lots of other synthetic and illegal ways that release oxytocin and make Mm. us feel real good. So this one's a completely natural, free, like, not a legal way of getting that high and it's called the helper's high because it it is like a literal high in your body from being kind oxytocin also increases your heart health so when your body releases oxytocin oxytocin um, releases nitric oxide or causes our body to release nitric oxide nitric oxide dilates 
our blood vessels, mm-hmm. which means that our, we lower our blood pressure. So we've got stronger, healthier hearts, which is pretty amazing. That's pretty cool. We also have another hormone that's released is serotonin. Um, and serotonin directly impacts on cortisol. So when our body, serotonin is another good feeling, again, illegal highs impact on serotonin release. So this is, it's literally your body is like having this high, like it's, it's feeling real good about itself and you're kind, like your body's rewarding you for, <laughs> for doing kind things. But serotonin also, as I said, impacts on cortisol levels and, and inhibits the release of cortisol, which is that stress hormone. So when you're kind, it it also uh, impacts on your immunity, so improved immunity, um, as well as the heart health. You also release endorphins, which is the exercise, that feel good, and that's a natural painkiller. So like your brain is just flooded (laughs) and your body is just being totally bombarded by like amazing, lovely, feel-good hormones. So go out there and do kind things, people, please. (laughs) That is awesome. Kindness is just, the science behind kindness is just amazing what it does to body. It's amazing that it has such a physical benefit as well as a mental one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it really does. And as I said, it it comes back a, a bit to that evolutionary, like kindness is, generally directed at other people of course you can have self-kindness as well but kindness is generally directed at other people and when we're kind it's it's considering someone else's needs and helping them to meet their needs or, or you know caring for them in some way and that promotes like the strength and safety of the group and so our body is built to want to have a safe group around it so that's why it rewards us in such a way to promoting mm. that it wants us to do it again so we feel really good and we are kind again and strengthen the group some more yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and the last thing that I want to ask you about is empathy and how we can show empathy and practice empathy to others. And again, as well, how that helps with our own mental and potentially potentially physical health, as you just described to me with kindness. Yeah, yeah. So empathy is is key in kindness. Empathy is essentially being able to step into someone else's shoes and be able to understand their perspective or their experience or their emotional response to something. So it's that real kind of immersive being able to see something from somebody else's perspective. When we can do that, it improves our relationships massively, hugely. The quality of our reciprocal relationships, it it increases dramatically because, say, for example, you had a really, really bad morning. You know, you woke up and you realised that the milk was off and then your kid was like, oh, I've lost my shoes. And then you have to spend 20 minutes like running around looking for the shoes and one's in the freezer and one's stuck up in a tree. And I mean, like real stories, like I've I've heard of terrible places children leave their shoes, Um, you know, and then like you're you're rushing out the door and you spill something on your work shirt and you're running late and you run outside and realize that you've left the car keys inside. (laughs) You call up a friend, right? You're like, I've had the worst day. It was just, it was just terrible. And your friend's like, oh, well, you should have been better organized, shouldn't you? Like, come on. Like, you know, you've got to go to work. Like, why didn't you get your kids' shoes ready the night before? Like, oh, come on. Like, it's not that bad. Mm-hmm. You kind of go, oh, that <laughs> my little heart, like that feels really horrible. Mm-hmm. And your relationship is not, that doesn't, that doesn't feel really like connected or 
you know, that's not empathy. But say your friend was like, oh my gosh, that sounds like such a tough morning, you know, that would have been so frustrating for you. Like I, I can just imagine just how tough that would have been. And you're like, yeah, that's right. It was a tough morning. Thank you. And you feel validated, you feel warm, and you feel more connected to this person who's who said those things to you. So empathizing builds relationships. Relationships make us feel safe, they make us feel connected. Mm-hmm. When we empathize, we're also more likely to take people's needs into consideration and we're more likely to engage in kindness and, and all those lovely things that we talked about in, in kindness. And also, you know, when we when we empathize, we also, I guess it, it also helps to process our own stuff as, as well and kind of normalize that, you know, sometimes things are tough, sometimes people get tired or, yeah, things are really frustrating. So not only are we kind of building that relationship with, with somebody else, but it can also just help us to acknowledge, you know, our own kind of struggles or, you know, acknowledge that feelings are legitimate and okay or it's acceptable to, you know, feel a certain way. So empathy is is hugely important to us in terms of our relationships and our, our well-being. Mm. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this really awesome information about how our feelings and what we do every day affects our physical and mental health. I find that really, really interesting. And yeah, I want to thank you so much. No problem. I love talking about this kind of stuff. It's, I think that if people knew more about their emotions, they wouldn't be so scared of them. Um, And if they felt more in control of them or knew some really healthy and adaptive ways of coping with them or acknowledging their feelings, that they would feel more capable and, and less less fearful of their emotions and, and in turn better able to, to deal with them and feel happy and healthy and all that kind of stuff. Super passionate about it. So I, I, love, I love having um, these kinds of conversations and talking about it. Yeah, that's awesome. If you have one takeaway that you want people to take away from this episode, what would it be? Oh, just one? Okay. Think it's all about meeting our needs. That has been like a little undercurrent of many of the discussions. So the emotional recognition of our needs and what our emotions tell us about our needs, the importance of meeting those needs in in feeling, you know, confident, capable. Meeting your needs is going to help you feel kind of neutral, you know, like at your baseline, able to cope, you know, if, if your needs are being met, whether that's emotional needs, physical needs, safety and security needs. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're really interested, have a look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like this little pyramid that kind of shows us that to get to a point of self-actualization, which is a bit of a kind of buzzy word, you know, we need to have all these other needs met first. It's like that old food pyramid scheme. Like, you know, you've got to have all your cereals and your grains at the bottom. So you've got to have like safety and security first. And you know, if we meet our needs, we've got a better chance of feeling well and, and feeling good. And, you know, that included that conversation as well about self-care and, and conversations about emotions. So meet your needs, people. Look after yourselves. That is my, that is my takeaway. That is awesome. Meet your needs. Rachel, yeah. thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> no problem. Thank you so much for having me. We covered so many topics in what felt like a really short time today. I got so lost in my conversation with Rachel that I totally lost track of time. 
If you enjoyed today's episode as much as I enjoyed recording it, please jump on over to your podcasting app and give us a review so more people like you can find us and join the Mindset Mastery community. Thank you so much for joining us today and I can't wait to have your company again next time. Remember, we are only limited by what we believe we are limited.